Hello there and welcome to Community Life. Here we talk with the community experts about their life journeys and how they came into the community world. And today we have a conversation with Danny Weinstein, a master network builder and avid tennis player who even brought his team to first place in the USTA National Championships, an aspiring super dad and a passionate community detective, strategist and leader who even writes his own tweets. So, hello Danny. Hey Yuri. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on the show today. Yeah, I'm so I'm so happy to meet you. And the first question, tell me please, why is your Twitter account named Danny Boy 777? That's a good question. So my name is actually it's it's spelled Danny D A N I. It's actually pronounced Dani, which is the way you would say it in Hebrew and what it means it means my judge. Uh and when I did join Twitter, which was almost 15 years ago, all of the good handles that I found with D A N I were taken or they were related to you know the, you know, there's actually some pornographic site that has that four letter <laughs> name, so it's sort of not not you know not good. And so Long, long ago, I uh, somebody coined me or nicknamed me Danny Boy, so I like that quite a bit. And I also am a big fan, maybe superstitious, of Triple Seven. So I just put that together, and I thought that would be a neat little, a neat handle. And tell me a little more about Triple Seven. I just think seven's a lucky number, and so having three of those uh, was going to be in good stead. Nothing more than that. <laughs> Okay, got it. And do you remember what was your first try of the name, like Danny, just in general, or what what, what uh, nickname you wanted to pick first? Oh, I think it probably would have just been straight up uh, Danny Boy or, you know, Stephen Donnie, D-A-N-I, nothing more than that. Um, I have a different nickname that my tennis captain from our first, the first team that I played on in 2009 in local league, uh, I've been, uh, they coined, they gave me the, the name, uh, danger. Wow. So, you know, we have, I've named my teams danger zone. When I play, people don't like playing against me. And when I get them, you know, tennis is really. For those people who are not familiar with tennis, you obviously have to have physical skill, but frankly, tennis is. 70% mental and 30% physical. So it's really about a mindset. And there's very much of that in play. And I'm very good at being a strategist, even on the tennis court, and wearing down my opponents uh, psychologically versus, let's say, physically in the game. Uh, I have a different type of game than more traditional game. And so um, I guess because of all of that, now my friend Bill excuse me bill swanson uh coined the name uh danger and so it's down in danger weinstein and when i play it's called danger zone yeah yeah now i now i know what 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 it was uh an instagram post about about the danger zone hmm, cool thank you very much for sharing that and let's start from the beginning so tell me about your parents who are they so my parents, so I grew up uh, in New York in the suburbs of New York City uh, on Long Island in a town called Merrick, which is on the South Shore. Uh, and so very much suburbia. Uh, you know, most of the people on Long Island uh, are tied economically to New York City. So most people that live out in the suburbs, they typically take the train. Uh, my father, um, his name is Chaim, he's no longer around. <clears throat> he was born and raised in Israel. Uh, he fought in the Independence War. And he came to the States in the early 50s to study civil engineering at the University of California, Berkeley. And so he went to Cal Berkeley in the 50s, worked in Chicago, Pittsburgh, New York, and ultimately went back. I went back to Israel for a year and a half, came back to New York and met my mother. And so he spent his whole career, um, if those people don't know what structural engineering is, you have an architect that designs a building or a power plant or a bridge, and you need a structural engineer to say, okay, is the plan solid? Is it sound? Is it going to actually stand up? And so you need the structural engineer to do all the calculations to say, all right, the plans are correct. And yes, the bridge will not fall down. The building will not fall down. And so he was actually involved with quite a number of projects in New York City in the 60s. Um, Lincoln Center, Arizona Bridge, uh, LaGuardia Airport, and, and quite a few others. Um, so he was on the 
engineering side. My mother uh, was born and raised in New York City. Uh, she's a musician, so she actually studied at Juilliard School and she taught elementary music for over 40 years. Um, my mom's still still around, so she actually lives in California about half an hour from us. She's 86 years old and she still plays tennis twice a week. Wow. No way. Do you yeah. play together? Yeah, we hit sometimes. But every Wednesday and Saturday, all the uh, seniors go out there and they they have what they call drop-ins. So there's 80-year-olds, 90-year-olds. It's it's pretty amazing. So it's a sport that, you know, if you have, you know, you're still healthy enough to even stand or walk, you know, run, you know, mildly, you can play the game. It's, it's totally awesome. What is her secret? Oh, boy. Well, I think there's good genes. I mean, her mother, who, again, was, was born in Ukraine, came here at a very young age uh, during World War One. Uh, she played tennis till 86 as well. So there's certainly, you know, good genes. And I think, um, you know, she's been pretty health conscious most of her life, even though, you know, the definition of eating healthy has changed every decade. So, <laughs> I mean, as a kid, I remember we ate pretty much everything that's so-called unhealthy today. But, um, you know, I think it's just you have to have a passion for living. And then maybe the secret is uh, having a good marriage and also traveling. And she's been well-traveled. And that's certainly something that I've uh, adopted. And uh, you need to keep busy with things that you love to do. So she's playing tennis twice a week. And she's getting together with her friends playing Scrabble and uh, an avid reader. It's all of the above. And, you know, you've got to be blessed and lucky. So, you know, good health should not be taken for granted. Exactly. And... Do you know how your parents met? Yeah, so my father returned to the States in New York in the late 50s. Um, he actually was set up with my mother through a mutual friend. It was a blind date. Okay. And, you know, back then it's sort of, okay, you, you know, you don't know, and they get married within six months. <laughs> it's a good blind date, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so... I understand that your mother loves playing tennis a lot. And is your love to tennis from her? Well, certainly, yeah. She gave me the gift um, for playing tennis. I mean, I, I play, started playing at, at eight years old. And uh, again, growing up at, in the suburbs of New York, we had easy access to go see the US Open, which was played every September. <clears throat> It used to be in Forest Hills. Now it's at the big stadium in the same general area. But, uh, you know, we were middle class and both parents worked very hard. Uh, but the first week of the open, the tickets were actually affordable. The second week toward the finals, it gets very expensive. And as a kid, we used to go every year to week one. So that was instilled in me and I got to see some amazing players back in the 70s and 80s, you know, uh, such as John McEnroe. Um, And then, of course, you know, I played I played tennis in high school and certainly played with uh, with my brothers. And even again, till today, hit occasion with uh, with my mother. So it's certainly that. And also just even on television, we used to watch uh, Wimbledon or the French Open, uh, all the majors. Uh, it became, you know, part of our part of our things we like to do and like to watch. Have you ever thought of being a professional, like really professional, like top tennis player well you could dream but you know the reality is my my game is not not nearly good enough to be professional level i mean i have friends of I have friends of mine that i play tennis with who's uh have kids that potentially we could go that route and frankly you need to start at a really really young age i mean three or four or five you need a lot of coaching a lot of training a lot of money because there's a lot of uh, you, you, it's not just about having a great game it's also fine-tuning it and getting sponsors and getting on tours. And so, um, you know, one of my, one of my friends that I play with regularly is, um, you know, Bill, Bill Swanson that I mentioned earlier, his son, Chathan, uh, was I think top 10 in California in high school. Uh, he went to, he went to University of California Davis on a full scholarship to play tennis. Um, you know, but again, even then, that doesn't mean you can turn pro. Uh, you, it's, you're getting, you're potentially a candidate to get into that pool, but, It's really like a hockey stick curve, the level of talent, where you need to be. It's, you know, it's, there's so few people that reach that level. Um, and it's a grind, you know, it's not like you're playing once a, once a week and you're playing multiple times every day and training and 
In fact, one of the guys that Chatham used to play against as a teenager, uh, Jensen Brooksby, is now in the top, I think he's in the top 30, but he's from Sacramento, you know, 22, 23 years old. And he's played, he's done pretty well in the last uh, year, year and a half. Uh, but again, it's a, it's just a crazy commitment. So for me, you know, um, I, I was having to play in high school. I hit socially with friends for many years. I started playing league in 2009. And then uh, I started captaining teams in 2012. And then I had the fortune of taking my team to national championships uh, in 2013. And we came in fourth in the country. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. So that's probably the closest I'll get to professional. And now I was actually just in another league. And we recently competed in Orlando. Um, and we came in sixth in the country. So, you know, got a pretty good game. But it's not, this is this is a different level than, you know, being a professional, making a lot of money there. Um, and again, it's it's just a. If you want, if you haven't had an opportunity to watch the movie about the the Williams sisters, so Venus and Serena, yeah. with Will Smith, that was a fantastic movie, and that gives you some insight as to how hard it is to get into um, to break through. And again, and they did that, you know, coming from uh, you know an unprivileged uh, environment uh, and got access to some of the top people. So. Um, you know, and even the book, if you ever read the book around Andre Agassi, what he went through as a kid with his father, I mean, he had, he, he was literally tortured by his father, um, mentally. Um, you know, he became an incredible player, but again, the, the, the wear and tear on the psyche is, is just crazy. Yeah, and if we are talking about national championships, so what is it for you, a fun or a competition, or maybe both? Well, it's both. You have to have a competitive uh, nature to to get there. It just doesn't happen, uh, and that takes you know that takes time. I think that my um, you know strategic and mental skills on the tennis court helped me to get into those 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 levels of championships. Uh, you know, there may be players that have better game than I do on a, you know, in a casual match, um, you know, they have a better serve, they have a better forehand, better backhand, but it's not just again about the physical it's, I would say again, 70% mental, 30% physical. And, you know, one of my favorite books, uh, is by Brad Gilbert. It's called winning ugly. Hmm. And, you know, Brad Gilbert is the epitome of that. He, you know, he actually coached Andre Agassi, but he, when, when Brad was a player back in the eighties, he, if you looked at him on paper, say now he's never going to beat macro he's never going to be connor's he's never going to beat these top players and he did mentally not on his physical game so uh so for me it's it's sort of a you know again i've gone twice now as a player um it's a it's an amazing experience you get to meet people from all over the country uh it's, it's also a lot of fun but again at the same time it's you've got to have the competitive edge but it's also not only about about winning and, and getting the number one spot. It's also, you've got to enjoy enjoying the experience and, um, you know, that's part of part of the fun. And how did you feel when you become a captain of the team? So with captaining, uh, again, I had played in other other people's teams and, you know, I've got I've got three kids. That's like already being a, you know, a manager. I've been in, in HP <laughs> for many years. Uh, and so, you know, I thought I could take those skills uh, to, you know, help lead my team to bigger, you know, bigger and better things. And so I enjoyed the, the, you know, captaining and it's not just about, it's really, well, there's several things. There's a lot of organizational skills you need because you've got to chase after everybody to be, make sure they're available to play, what their schedules are. You've got to set up lineups, but also it's a bit of a chess. Uh, there's a bit of a chess psychology involved because you get to know, you're playing, you know, we have a team in our club and you're playing teams in the other club in the, in the local area in Sacramento. And so you get to know who's who in the league over time. And so as you see who's on the roster, you, you're trying to figure it out who they're going to play today. You see who shows up for warmups. You try to guess, okay, where are they going to put this player in the lineup? And you have to, it's not, you know, again, it's a team match. So it's, it's five lines or two singles, three doubles. You've got to win at least three lines to win the team match. And that's, that's the most important for that particular thing. So there's definitely a chess element uh, to it. And then of course, you know, understanding, uh, you know, all the rules and how people play. Um, and obviously when you've got a strong team and you start winning, it becomes a lot more pleasurable. And so you get to go do more fun things by getting to 
not only the playoffs, but the you know, the Sweet 16 in the region, the top, the final four for, Cal for Northern California. And then, of course, the one or two times I've gone, once as a captain, once, once as a player, uh, to go to a national championship. So I was you know, blessed to go to down to Palm Springs and Indian Wells uh, with my first team. And then more recently, we went to, uh, went to Orlando. So what was the best tennis match you've ever played? Wow. I've had some good ones. So there's been a few. Um, I would say I'm going to go back to... Um, there's probably several there when i was still what was called a so the way the way the tennis league works at least in the united states you've got a rating and so if you're a beginner player you start out at what they call level 2.5 if you before you you join you have to do what they call self-rating they ask you you have a survey and it says did you ever play high school tennis and if you say yes then you, the minimum you can be is 3.0 if you say i played college college tennis then the minimum is 4.0 If you are a pro or I say, you know, a coach in a club, then you're likely a 4.5. So it's very much like a, a hockey stick curve. So three, I was like high school ball players, three, five, a really strong player, 4.0, you played college, 4.5, you were good enough to be teaching tennis at a local club. Mm -hmm. 5.0 is the end of the, the ladder. And if you're a 5.0, then you actually can get a nationally, a national number to compete in tournaments for money. So. In 2009, I was yeah, I self-rated as a 3.0 because I played high school tennis. And uh, during that period of time, I had a great season. I think I was 12 and 3 for the year. We went to the Final Four in California or Northern California. But I did have a match. Uh, we played a local tournament. And I ended up playing um, four matches in uh, 29 hours over a weekend. And the last one was a guy it was against a man, again in Stuart Fines. And so it was about a four hour match and I won that six, four, four, six, six, four. And yeah, that was certainly one that resonates with me. And I ended up winning the tournament because of that. Um, another one is when we were running on our run to nationals in 2013, uh, I had a singles match where I think I was, you know, you have two sets and then the third set in the, in the playoffs is always, it's not a full set. It's a 10 point tiebreaker. So the first person to get 10 points wins. The, you have to win by two points. So I think I was losing one eight or, or one seven. And I managed to come back and win that. And then the other the other big one is um, we were going, we ended up becoming second in Northern California for the 18 and over league the same year in 2013. I played a guy that had not lost in a couple of years. Um, And he was playing, you know, you can play up to a higher level if you want to. And I had like a three-hour match against him and came back. And that, 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 also won, that one also resonates quite well. Do you remember what did you say yourself that match when you were losing and winning after that? So what helped you to win? Sure. So tennis matches are very much um, a marathon. And... Everybody, everybody can have a bad start or a slow start, or you can have a strong start and then, you know, slow down. So you've got these, you know, ebbs and flows. It's never, it's rarely a straight shot where someone's just, you know, winning everything. And then it's just, just a, that's just a general mismatch. So that rarely happens. And usually it's much more competitive and you've got to have the mindset that um okay what's gonna you know where do i need to where do i need to get to what's the end game what's the what's you know you have to envision sort of the, the crossing the line in a, in a race or even the end zone if it's football um you know you do that psychologically in tennis so if we have a slow start you got to say to yourself all right i need to start winning one point and two points because it's not just about i gotta win the whole game no you gotta start with like let's get one good point and you get another good point and as you start to you know, capture points and you win a game and then you break someone else's serve, psychologically, the momentum changes. You can start seeing the other player, oh, they get worried if they're weakened or you figured out, oh, that's a way to beat this person. And so you got to continue and persevere, uh, you know, on that. In fact, we had a couple of those um, at Nationals recently. We were, my partner and I were actually up three love that we can't, we, we fell behind six, five. We went to a tiebreaker. We lost the tiebreaker. 
And then the second set, we were losing 1-4. And we came back and won 7-5, and then we won the tiebreaker. And that match was two hours and 40 minutes. So after the um, – even when we were down, I just said, look, we, we chatted my partners, listen, this is a critical game. we got to win. Let's get focused on this this point, this game. And as we did that, we could see the, the tide changing. And even the next day, we lost the first set 6-2. And, but we both felt good about how we were playing. And we said, like, we lost the battle. We're going to win the war. And we did. How did you get this mindset? So I'm very tenacious and I rarely give up on anything uh, that, I'm, that I'm usually involved with. And so, you know, I had a reputation for many years, I still do, of, of getting things done. Um, and I, you know, while also being, you know, while also being a team player. And, um, you know, for me, especially in tennis, even if you're having a, you're struggling or you're losing, um, you know, I'm going to go down with a fight. So even if I lose to somebody, many times they'll, they'll say at the end of the match, well, you played great. I don't want to play you again. Um, and so if they say that, then it's, it's actually gratifying to me because, you know, it basically they were worried. Because um, you're not going to win everything. But if I know that I you know, went out there, I gave it my all, and, you know, then it's a good day. Let's, let's dig a little deeper. So tell me the first memory of your childhood that comes to your mind right now. The very first of my childhood. Wow. That comes to your mind right now. <laughs> so I do remember um, as a young child, um, I think it was our first time visiting Israel to visit our grandparents and we were watching the, um, the landing on the moon. So I'm now dating myself. <laughs> But that's sort of a very early age um, vivid memory. So we're all sitting around this black and white TV set and, you know, in awe of, you know, Neil Armstrong landing on the moon, jumping off the, uh, the ladder. Also, you shared on Twitter that your grand-grandparents were one of the 66 families to establish Tel Aviv. So mm -hmm. how do you feel about that? I'm incredibly proud of that. I mean, Tel Aviv is an amazing city. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to, to visit Israel yet, but not yet, yeah, not yet. We can make that happen. There's a, a huge expat population of Ukrainians and Russians that are there. So, uh, but even beyond that, there's people from all over the world out there. It's, it's a country of immigrants. And so, um, yeah, so my dad's family, the Weinsteins, they, We have roots. The, the, the actual Einsteins came from Lithuania in, I think, the 1860s. And then even my great-great-grandfather married into a family that was in Jerusalem going back to the 1700s. Uh, but the net-net the, the is that the, there, was a, there was a Jewish community in the town of Jaffa, which is a biblical town just south of Tel Aviv. And um, there was land that was purchased um, by the Jewish community. It was all sand dunes. There was nothing there in 1909 and so my great-grandparents were one of those 66 families that established the, the city of tel aviv and it's it's a pretty amazing thing and when we go visit the uh the houses that they used to live in they're, they're not owned by by the family anymore but the houses still exist and when they had the 100 year anniversary of this of the city the city of tel aviv put these uh plaques in the sidewalk saying Here lived one of the founders of Tel Aviv. Their names, and it's it's quite. Uh, and there's also a a monument in in um, on Rothschild Boulevard, which is probably one of the most beautiful parts of the city today. You actually have Google headquarters, Facebook headquarters is right there, uh, but you also have beautiful restaurants and cafes. And on that monument has all this, the names of the 66 uh, families. So it's my great grandparents, and then. I think three siblings of my great grandfather and their spouse are listed there, listed on there as well. So no, it's it's a something we're very proud of. Um, you know, there's history, and again, being Jewish um, and what happened in the Holocaust, I have. You know, there's a lot of Jewish families that don't have that that have that luxury. They don't know what happened. They don't have no history. There's nothing that goes before what happened in in Europe for them. So um, you know, we're very fortunate in that regard. Yeah. Also, I can see a Ferrari F40 behind you, and I guess yeah. it's Lamborghini, yes, Miura. Yeah, Miura, uh-huh. 
So, are you a fan of cars? I am. So, still don't know anything like that. I do. We do have a Tesla three. That's that's kind of the nicest car we've ever owned, but uh, nothing like a Ferrari or Lamborghini. But we did a trip to Italy in twenty. 2015 for my oldest uh, bar mitzvah we went there and then we, we went to israel and so when in the area of modena so it's north of Firenze or north of florence and south of venice it's what i would call the italian car country <laughs> so you have uh, two ferrari uh, museums you have the ferrari factory you have lamborghini factory lamborghini museum um maserati um Who am I missing? We went to the other one. It's a really expensive car too. So we went to the, you know, we went to the Ferrari museums. Um, but there's a handmade car, and the name's escaping me right now. I'll remember it in a few minutes. Um, but we went there and had a tour. And so while we were there, we we picked up uh, these posters. And so I put that in my office. Are those cars uh, the cars of your dreams? Uh, let's say that's necessarily the car of my dreams. I mean, one of my, one of the cars I dreamt about growing up was like the, uh, you know, the Jaguar V12, you know, the long nose XKE. That was certainly one I loved, um, early on. Um, you know, there was like the, um, I used to like the, uh, the old Oldsmobile Tornados, but you know, as a kid, I used to just have this memory, you know, I, I would memorize and just recognize every car model and go see cars and we can say, oh, that's a 72 Beetle or a 65 Chevy, whatever it is, for whatever reason. And I used to go to car shows in New York all the time. I used to go to car shows on Long Island. And then I had friends growing up that were, you know, hobbyists. And so they had cars that they were trying to fix up and, and make really fast. And so, you know, kind of got into that. So I've always had a passion for um for going to car shows and for you know appreciate <clears throat> you know beautiful cars what kind of driver are you i am a very safe driver <laughs> what does it mean it means that uh i've never been in an accident um i certainly have had my share of uh of speeding tickets <laughs> parking tickets but right now clean record um and i have a ton i have a lot of driving experience even for somebody my age so i've driven across the united states a few times um and i even worked in new york city well i worked on long island actually as a taxi driver for several years uh during college so you know having that mindset and um You know, again, even the trip I did around the United States after college, I mean, they did 20,000 miles or, or about 36,000 kilometers, sorry, 32,000 kilometers in uh, five months of driving. Uh, but as I said, I've driven cross country several times. We even did an RV trip during COVID with the family. So we did like 6,000 miles or about 10,000 kilometers in, in a month. And that was a, you know, large, so 55 foot, you know, pickup truck plus the trailer. So... You're talking about maybe 15, 18 meters, uh, probably 18 meters in length. Um, and it helped my brother move across the country. So a lot of driving experience. Um, and at the same time, you know, like I said, I've had, um, <clears throat> I've got a cousin in Florida, the Stone, a dealership. And so every time I visit Miami, he would have a, a nice weekend car. So I've had the pleasure of driving some very nice cars a few times. Hmm. Uh, I didn't get speeding tickets with those, but um <laughs> uh, I certainly, you know, like to go a little bit faster than normal, but also being conscious of um, of being safe. And tell me one story of you being a taxi driver. Like, it may be a fun, it may be a scary story, it may be like whatever you remember. Sure. So <clears throat> this was actually at. It was. It's different than just going around. Manhattan and picking up random people on the street. This was actually at a train station uh, in Hicks, Hicksville, Long Island. And so it was the largest train station uh, on Long Island. And 
they had kind of a, they had a monopoly there. And so the owner was actually a neighbor of my parents. And when I was a kid, actually, I had a, I had a lawn cutting business when I was 13. That was sort of my first enterprise. And so Bill Kaufman was one of my first customers. And I knew that he had this taxi company. I also knew he had a limousine service. And so in, in, in college, I said, hey, Bill, I want to go drive the limo. And it's like, you're, you're not old enough. You have to be 25. <laughs> but you can drive the cat, the taxi, you'll make more money anyway. So I did this at night. And the way that it worked is someone would have to come into the train, the taxi office and ask for a ride. And they could put five, up to five rides in one car if they'd be going the same direction. So, and it was all commission-based. But from a, uh, I would say, adventurous story, the way it worked, you'd get through the, the evening rush hour. Because I would start at three in the afternoon, I'd work till probably two in the morning. Uh, you would get through the evening rush of people coming home. And again, it's the same people, same routine. So I would recognize, you know, I have, I have a good, good photographic memory. I would know, I would recognize people's face. I knew where they lived. <laughs> so they were just, you know, I'm going that way, getting this car. So people liked the fact that they didn't have to tell me where to go. They knew, and I knew exactly what they were going to tip me, how much the fare was. It was all like really, you know, it was automated. Now, having said all that, after the evening rush, it slows down and you have to, when, when train comes in, you, you take the person there and then it's probably another half hour before the next train. You wait in that area to see if there's another ride coming back to go to the train. So, I don't know, 10, 11 o'clock at night, um, they, go tell me to, they go tell me to pick up at the emergency room at a hospital. So I go there and uh, the nurse comes out and she says, so are, are you a baseball fan? I said, well, sure. Well, who do you like, the Mets or the Yankees? I said, well, I'm a Mets fan, but I also like the Yankees. Okay, well, the guy you're going to take, he's, he, he played for both teams. Um, you're not to take him home. You need to take him to the, to the uh, hotel. And I'm like, what happened? Oh, he got into a fight with his wife. She hit him over the head with a baseball bat. Uh, but don't take him home. <laughs> so I took him from the hospital to the Holiday Inn. And then, and his name was Neil Allen. So he played for the Mets and he just signed a big contract with the Yankees. And um, I take him to the hotel. I'm like, okay, wait there. And then 15 minutes later, the, the dispatcher calls. He says, go pick him up. He wants to go home. <laughs> okay. So we go to his house. I pick him up to his house. He says, you need to wait here in the car. I get to the house. There's two police officers in the driveway. His wife is yelling at him on the on the doorstep. He's like, you know, I got to go inside. I got to take care of a few things. And he's like, I've come to that side. We have to go to the police station. Go to the police station. And then uh, he comes out. And again, there's a running there's a running tab. And now it's probably close to midnight. And I've already been working about nine hours. So we're at the police station. He's checked with them. Then he says, okay. Um, how much, he then gets in the car and says, how much uh, will it cost to go to Boston? <laughs> and I'm in New York. It's a good you know, 250 miles or roughly, you know, let's call it 400 kilometers. Uh, like, I don't know. I asked my dad, says, oh, it's $2 a mile. I'm like $500. Okay. I need to check, make a phone call. We're either going to go to the airport or I'm going to go to uh, to Boston. And again, it's a five-hour drive, six-hour drive. I'm already working all this hour, so... Anyway, in the end, uh, he made his phone call and said, just take me to the airport. So it was quite the two-hour adventure. Took him to the airport. He gave me a really nice tip. And um, that's just one of many, many stories. You know, I think that, it, you know, that that job, I've always, always had jobs that have been customer service, customer facing. I mean, even again, building up a, a landscaping business, you know, you're, you're cutting people's lawns in the neighborhood. You, you see every type of person, even in my own, you know, my own neighborhood, if I've, 40 houses that we dealt with. You had nice people, you had angry people, you had people that were, you know, whatever. And driving a taxi, you see everybody of every background, color, personality, young, old, nice, angry. Um, I was lucky I never got robbed. And, you know, it's it was quite the adventure. Yeah, I can't. I can't relate. But I can feel what you are talking about. Yeah, it's really. And were you ready to go on this trip, like five, six hours? Oh yeah. <laughs> I would have just slept. You know, I would just, I would just got coffee and gone, and then I would slept somewhere in Boston for a few hours and come home. Yeah. Wow, it's amazing. I honestly was more worried about the the tax, the car making it, because again, you're. It's not my car. It's the company's car. They're really old. Like these old police cars that have been converted to taxi cabs and. They had, you know, 
three, four, five, six hundred thousand miles on some of these cars. They were not in great shape. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're a really adventurous type of person. <laughs> mm-hmm. I noticed uh, on your LinkedIn, like in the part of languages, so you have English, German, Hebrew, Spanish, and you built a community in Domo in English and Japanese. So, what languages are you speaking good? So I, I'm fluent. <clears throat> excuse me, I'm fluent in Hebrew. I went to uh, Jewish day school for for seven years, but also uh, we traveled to Israel with family pretty regularly, uh, and that was the base for the language. But I, I did a semester on exchange in my undergraduate degree uh, at Tel Aviv University, and that that six month period is when I became fluent in Hebrew. And then even today, my later on, I lived in Tel Aviv uh, for a number of years in my early 20s. Um, and then even today, I have a lot of Israeli friends, and I, you know, I, I have the opportunity to to converse. So that's, you know, born and raised with, with you know, English as mother tongue, Hebrew. Uh, I studied Spanish for several years in high school. I've had the opportunity to travel to to Spain several times, to to Mexico a few times, even once in Argentina. Um, and then even in California, there's opportunity to speak a little bit more Spanish. So I would say I have basic Spanish, uh, German. I studied for a year in university. I've been to Germany several times. Um, and so I got some basic German there. And then there's probably another 10 languages where I can, you know, order beer or coffee, uh, just from all of my, you know, tra- I mean, I had a Russian girlfriend at one point. My wife is from Montreal, so she's fluent in French. Her, her parents are Romanian. Uh, you know, living in Israel, you pick up Arabic. Um, I studied in Holland on exchange in, my, in graduate school at the Rotterdam School of Management. So, uh, you know, Dutch, I can I can understand a lot of Dutch. The challenge with the challenge with Dutch is the Dutch are probably the most fluent people on the planet. I mean, they especially in a, in a university setting. So I don't look the part of it. I don't look Dutch. And every time I would try to start a conversation in Dutch, they would answer me in English. The only way you could actually learn Dutch was by going to the local market with all the immigrants because they want to speak Dutch. So <laughs> uh, Dutch, you know, Finnish. Um, and so, you know, again, it's from, you know, and even uh, a handful of words in Chinese, you know, Ni Hao, CSA. I've been to, to Beijing, Shanghai several times. Uh, Yeah, and then you know, and then even in my work with HP, we we deployed and I managed seven language communities. So we had English, French, German, Spanish, Portuguese, simplified Chinese, and Korean. And so as you're going through that, and again, I wasn't the one moderating those languages, but I helped to run the teams that put them together. We did all these ability testing, and so visually, we had our HP branding. We had to make the sites exactly the same. I would start to learn you know, technical words around, because I, you would see the UI, I would know exactly what that button was in English, and I would automatically know, okay, this is what it is in Japanese. <laughs> the same thing at Domo, we did, we had a need for deploying a full Jap- a fully localized Japanese experience for the Domo customers in Japan. Um, and I've been to Japan one time, and I lo- really wanted to go, uh, I, I had an opportunity to go back with Domo, and they changed the dates of the customer event, like, a week before a week before the schedule and I had family commitments at home so we had to I wasn't able to go at that time but looking forward to going back once again referring to the poster behind you Boulevard of Broken Dreams tell me more about that oh so this is um, you know a a Helen Wine poster or um, print or art that's quite famous it's got James Dean in the in the And it's James Dean, uh, Marilyn Monroe, Elvis Presley, and um, oh, I forgot the actor's name. Not Cary Grant. Um, that'll come back to me. But very famous uh, actor from the 40s. And I've had this for a really long time. It, cut, it just, I liked it a long, long time ago and kind of resurrected it when I did, you know, when I created this office, um, you know, when I had dedicated remote office quite a number of years ago. Yeah. So you've been working for, uh, you were working at HP overall for 18 years. Mm-hmm. Like, so yep. what did you feel when moving to another company? Oh yeah. So HP, I mean, that was, 
you know, a big part of my life and it was quite the journey. So, I mean, I got hired at HP out of graduate school and was a, uh, I joined a very profitable division of network printing. So this was when printers were moving from everybody having a printer on their desk to sharing it in a network environment in the office. And um, so you had network cards inside the laser jets or you had external boxes uh, for an inkjet printer. And uh, that technology actually was created in the Roseville division, Roseville networks division uh, here in California. Uh, and I was the first non-engineer hire, non-engineer product manager hired into that team as, as a product manager. And it was not very easy to get in. They made me, you know, I had a phone call on campus interview and then they, they came, they invited me in for uh, about six hours of interviews, but they sent me, uh, they mailed me or FedExed me two industry reports, one on the laser jet market and one on, uh, the network printing market. And I had to come in and, and give them a 30 minute presentation on uh, as if I'm the CEO of a brand new startup that's coming in to compete against HP in the space. And I'm presenting to the people that are gonna interview me. And the day went from six hours to about eight hours. They still didn't make the offer until the week later. But uh, my point is that I got to taste, I would say the legacy old HP culture. Because back in the day, and if you think about Steve Jobs and, and uh, Wozniak, if you've read about the history of Apple, they talk about what the HP culture was, what HP was back in the 70s and 80s. I mean, it was the company. And, you know, there's a reason why, I mean, even today, after all that, all that's gone down, uh, it still exists for, what, in the 1930s? So it's 61, 22, so in 83 years, um, <clears throat> you know, HP's been around in some flavor. And it's there's a reason for that. So I got to taste that culture, certainly the first few years that I was with the Jetra group. Um, it was very much a family. It was certainly work hard, play hard, but um, you know, it, you, you, it, it was just a very well, very well-oiled machine, very well process oriented. They, you know, they checkpoints on decision-making with, with the right teams. Um, and, you know, at the same time, it also really took in, they knew how to harness customer information, customer data, customer perspective on delivering a great experience and delivering good products. So, you know, with that, I evolved and, and ultimately went into a startup that HP, that HP acquired called Verifone. I was a product line manager. Uh, that, that group needed a lot of help. And then I came back to more traditional HP and spent most of my career in, in support and services. So I had a great run there. And then once Carly came in and all these idiot CEOs that came in, I mean, the, the board was absolutely awful. And they made all these terrible decisions for the company. They acquired all these acquisitions. I mean, 3Com and EDS and Autonomy and uh, you know, go on and on and on. I would say 90% of them added no value at all to the company. Uh, it was really dilution of the, of the company's value. It was all short-term for getting in the stock. Uh, and we just had very poor leadership. And it was probably a very long period where I, I would have considered leaving. Now, what kept me there was this whole opportunity, what we call being invited onto the ground floor of the uh, HP social care team back at the end of 2007. <clears throat> and at the end of the day is we won a, a JD Power Award for support in the Americas. Now, this was a very big organization. Again, it's support for consumer business. So everybody that owned PCs, printers, tablets, for the home, for micro-business, and it owned the entire operation for call in dozens of languages, uh, web, email support, chat support, remote control support. And I think the budget when I left in 2014 was about a billion dollars to run that out organization. So we wanted JD Power Award in the Americas in 2006 and 07, they said, we're not renewing it because you guys do not own and have a branded forum for support. And so we went to IT and they said, uh, okay, it's going to take us four years to build a forum or build a community. We're like, we can't wait four years. And that's how we got permission to go external and how we ultimately connected and, met and um, partnered with Lithium, which is today Koros, and had tremendous success. So that that having that success there, because we were not tied to HPIT, we had to work with Lithium. Uh, that made it fun again. We were having, you know, we were delivering quarterly great results. We were having fun. It was all industry leading. It was innovative. We won Groundswell awards. We were hosting amazing 
super fan summits. Um, and so to your point, things started to change. I think once our top leadership either started to retire or leave, uh, you know, VJ retired, he was our uh, EVP. And then uh, our top two leaders for really that gave us the support for doing all the great work in community, they both ended up going to Apple's. Once they left, we had new people coming in and change the leadership. They started questioning, well, why are we spending so much money on, you know, on community? Why don't we, you know, and we're like, hello, we're delivering tens of millions of dollars in savings and support. And we have these great super fans that are driving our business. And every six months is the same conversation. So once that leadership came in and then, and then HP was starting to, like, we got so big with all the acquisitions, we're now 350,000 employees. I don't think people knew what HP stood for anymore. And so one day our senior vice president shows up here in Roseville. Again, we had a beautiful campus, 500 acres. At one time there were 8,000 employees here. Uh, and we had 12 hours notice for an in-person meeting. Uh, and they basically said, listen, we're leaving the campus. Uh, you have four weeks to move to another another site. Your manager is here to tell you your options. So, again, I'm kind of situated between San Francisco and Lake Tahoe. And my whole career, I was here. And they told me that um, I've got to be in Palo Alto five days a week. And I'm like, well, you're not going to buy me a house, right? So you can't commute there. Uh, and also I said, why? My teams are in 12 time zones. I'm well, I've been, I'd already been, you know, HP was way ahead of the curve on working from home and being remote. I'd been doing that for like a 10, already 10 years. I mean, going like once a week to the office. My teams were elsewhere. I had, you know, my team in Amsterdam with, with Wendy Skippers and in Sao Paulo with Kelly Machado and in Singapore with Lily Lowe and, um, you know, teams in Bangalore and boy, you know, everywhere, everywhere else. I said, you want me to sit in a chair in, in Palo Alto so I can get on the phone and talk to people, you know, talk to Yuri in, in, uh, in Warsaw? It's like, no. <laughs> so fortunately, my VP, John Moses, who was from the Palm culture, he went to bat for me. I, I ended up having about a year to work with, but it was really, okay, it's time to leave HP. And that's when I started to really leverage my community that I built out on LinkedIn. I mean, I've been, I've been on LinkedIn since 2004. I did it for my work. I never did it for myself. And so at that point, I'm like, now it's time for just myself. And that really led to, uh, you know, great things where I had, you know, I ultimately, it took a long time, but I had the offer from Domo. Uh, there was another Bay Area, <clears throat> Bay Area startup and I even had very advanced conversations with uh, Salesforce right about the time that, that Erica hired um holly firestone so that would have been interesting in any case i went to domo and so going from um hp to your question to to a startup again pre-ipo 500 person company they're in they're they're in utah very few people remote although they, they, they let me stay here in california uh for me it was actually refreshing it was like why did i wait so long to leave hp uh and again you kind of get comfortable you're you're tied to you know you have these great memories of what it was and it takes a long time to recognize it's changed it's not the same company it was and now they're now they're actually forcing the issue so uh you know that's the way life is and so I, I embraced that opportunity it was certainly a big change for me and my family you know my kids only knew me working from home uh and now i'm you know the first six months of domo i'm on a plane going to utah every week uh, so but you know, it was it was it was a healthy change. I helped to build, you know, really have a seat at the table, working for directly for the COO, drive strategy, build out a brand new B two B community, create the super fan program, have amazing events at, at our conferences, uh, speak at thirty user groups and thirty five user groups in North America. That um, really, you know, really connect with a whole different set of customers. So you know, B two C is one segment. This is now you know B two B. Go through an IPO. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, after a year and a half of, of travel, I, I was back to 80% working from my home office. So uh, it was good. Got it. And since you are an aspiring super dad, what is your dad's superpower? That's a great question. So, you know, and again, for those of you who have kids, uh, it, it's a journey. I mean, when they're really little uh, and you're not getting any sleep, especially your spouse, your wife, if you're a guy and, you know, she's the one who has delivered. The first year of life is really hard. And then if you've got two kids that are really small, that's even harder. And if they're like, you know, both in diapers, that makes it even more difficult. And so 
you're really on 24 seven to make sure that they're fed and clothed and bathed and, and, you know, they're not going to do something that they're going to you know, accidentally get killed. So then that you get through, you get through that. Of course, there's a lot of joy that goes through it too. It's not all doom and gloom. And then as you get through that and they, you know, they start to walk and they start to feed themselves, they can bathe themselves, they can dress themselves and they become more independent. They can ride the bus to school. You get more freedom. You start having more fun. You start traveling. You don't need strollers anymore. That's, you know, now you, now you become, all right, now it's like, how do we keep them busy with soccer and tennis and travel, you know, whatever, or even school activities. And then as they get older and they become teenagers, it's like, you're like, what happened? Now it's this person is now becoming, you know, this little, this, this bigger person. And they're telling me how to live my life. <laughs> so all the hormones kick in and they change. And sometimes it's pretty smooth and sometimes it's quite challenging. And so again, you, you move from being kind of, I think, all hands-on parent to becoming a coach and a trusted advisor. And that's kind of the role I'm in more today. Um, and there's no playbook for it. I mean, you can read all these books on parenting, but at the end of the day, it's your kids, it's your life, and you've got to go with, you know, your, you know, the values you have and the intuition you you have and and kind of your gut feeling and, and work with your partner on what you think is the right decision. And sometimes, well, most times it's it's probably the right call. And sometimes you make bad decisions. But at the end of the day, we're I think the goal is to bring up uh, you know, healthy responsible human beings that are going to make the world a better place so uh that's what i'm trying to do as, as an aspiring super dad do you remember this moment when you transitioned when you told yourself okay now i'm not a full-time parent now my now i am a trusted advisor yeah and again i grew up in an era where My parents instilled in us, you've got to go to college, you've got to get good grades, that's the only way you're going to get a good job, and the world has changed. And so my now 20-year-old uh, is not your typical 20-year-old. Uh, he's been a gamer since he was 13, so an iPhone at 13, he was doing Minecraft. I took him to VidCon, which was the largest YouTuber conference in, in North America in Anaheim when he was 15. And I've been in tech my whole career, but then to go to this convention and see 25,000 kids ages 11 to 18 running around with their parents all talking about YouTube, it's like, holy cow. And he's like, we have to go to a, we have to go to a meetup in a park. I said, who are we going to meet up? Oh, we're going to meet this YouTuber. So we go two miles from the convention center. We go to this park and I have my laptop in my hotspot. I'm working and 500 kids show up to meet this YouTuber who's probably 22 years old. And he had 6 million followers on his channel at that time or subscribers. So Sam ended up, Sam befriended, the guy's name is Preston. Today he has 20 million subscribers. It's like 27 years old, 28 years old. Um, and a lot of short, Sam ended up working for him creating Minecraft maps and made quite a lot of money in 10th grade. And then he went to Dallas and when he turned 16, he went three trips to Dallas. So that, that was an epiphany where he finished school in 10th grade that year. He had all A's, he finished, uh, you know, college level courses and he wanted to go on this trip to Dallas. Now at 16, you could fly by yourself. So I said, well, where are you going to stay when you go to Dallas? Oh, well, his parents have a, a fixer upper house that's near the office. Uh, I'm going to stay there. I said, well, who else is in the house? Oh, there's another guy from, you know, the company. Who's he? I don't know. So that was the moment where like, well, is this safe? Is this the right decision? He really wants to go. You know, he said he, he delivered great results and we want to reward him. So we said, all right, we're going to let you go. But the, here's the conditions. First of all, You have to enable the location finder on your phone. It's the way you are 24-7 while you're while you're on the trip. Because he already turned on. He's so smart. He actually hacked our parental guidelines in some of the routers you have at home. When he was 13, he hacked the router and that disabled the, all the parental guide the controls inside a router. So it was, it was for these. Uh so you know, I so said you gotta do that. I said, number one, number two, if you're not feeling comfortable at any moment, you need to be calling me and telling me that so I can move you to a hotel. Uh, and then last I just said, I'm going to come on the weekend. I'm, I'll, we'll fly back together. 
So fortunately, nothing bad happened. He had a great time. And then subsequently, he went back to two more times. He actually stayed at Preston's house. He was married. They had a big house because they had sold the other property. Um, but that was, a, you know, that was a moment where it's like, okay, you got to let him do his own thing. And, and then even from there, he's now, he graduated high school early. He built a successful e-commerce business and he just sold his first business at 20. And so now he, he just moved back home for a bit. Uh, and I'm like, well, let's get on LinkedIn. And he started, he's like, no, no, I'm, I want to, I'm doing my own thing. Okay. <laughs> uh, and he's actually staying with my mother right now because she has a spare bedroom. He doesn't want to stay here. He wants his own space. But the point is right now he's trying to create five YouTube videos that tells his entire story about what he did. Since he was, you know, and essentially get a following and start to become a consultant in the space because he, he had he had 1.5 million in sales last year, you know, selling t-shirts and hoodies on a store at 19, which is just crazy. <laughs> um, so I've already seen two of the videos. It's, it's private right now, but they'll be published soon. And it's just, uh, I think he's going to make it. I think he's going to do just fine. And did it just start because of he liked playing video games and you allowed him to do that? Ah, it's really hard to say, and, you know, if it's, it's just that, because again, it spent all this time doing video games. We had restrictions on how much time he could do that. He was going to school, um, and he did it early on, but then he stepped away from it and he came back. When he came back, he actually saw the, the I think once he went to, U, the, to VidCon, he saw the business opportunity. And so when he started working for the YouTubers, that whole world kind of opened up his eyes about what's out there, what can be done on the internet with, with e-commerce. And again, he did not have an easy journey. It was, there were lots of uh, ups and downs, um, and, you know, and even selling, um, even selling the, um, his business was not easy. That took nine months. And, um, so it's really hard to say, you know, what was the, you know, what was the moment, but to your point, I think the epiphany about, you know, moving from hands-on parent to, to coach. And then even today, same thing. And even with my other two, it's, especially when, when they're struggling, it's hard to let go of that. You know, or am I the, am I the coach here? Am I the parent here? Yeah. It's not a, not a straightforward playbook. Totally. And it never will be for sure. <laughs> <laughs> You know, a little crazy question. I don't know why, but every time I see you a photo or a video, I feel like you are a Hollywood actor. So I don't know why, but I just have this feeling. So did you ever think about being an actor? Uh, not really. I mean, I, I mean, people say my doppelganger, depending on who you talk to, is Adam Sandler. <laughs> um... But, you know, becoming an actor was never really, um, it, it didn't really appeal to me. Okay. It was just my curiosity. So, yeah. And you feel it. <laughs> and, you know, I really wish to have the sky as the limit to our conversation, but time is the limit. So let's jump to the rapid fire questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. So Guinness or coffee? Oh, coffee. <laughs> Soccer or skiing? Skiing. What are your favorite color and song? Ah. So silver and we'll go with um, Stairway to Heaven. If you were a superhero, what superpower would you have? To instantly travel to any part of the world. Who do you learn from in the community world? Name one person. Oh boy. <laughs> Ryan Oblinger. Is there one question that I definitely should have asked you but didn't? Hmm. I think you did a good job on <laughs> asking. You're, you're very thorough, so nothing specifically comes to mind. And Final question, name two people who I should definitely reach out and have this conversation with them. So, 
Adrian Spire and Nicole Saunders. Got it. They are on my list. Thank you very much for sharing. Okay, Danny. So it was an amazing conversation. Thank you very much for, you know, I learned a lot from you, not only from uh, like experts, a community expert, like a human, and also from a parent's perspective, because I'm a parent myself. And when you were talking about transitioning from full-time parent to coach, I was like, yeah, mm, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing. So it yeah. is our first meeting, but I feel like, you know, after this conversation, it feels like I've, I've, I, I know you forever. So yeah, thank you very much for being so open and for sharing your life story. And, you know, I mm. have a lot of questions, but as I said, we have time is the limit. So just get ready for volume two. One day we'll definitely do it. Well, I'm looking forward to it and hopefully uh, we'll see a pickup. We'll get through kind of the economic downturn that we're in and um, I'll have the opportunity to uh, travel with SAP to Europe and hopefully we can meet up in uh, in Warsaw or Berlin or some other fine spot. And one of my teammates is in Croatia. Mm. And so uh, looking forward to that. And of course, or at least or at least in the upcoming CMX summit. You never know. So Yeah. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah, thank you very much for this conversation and see you in the community world. Bye. Thank you.